Welcome to the Fourth Watch Podcast, a curated conversation with some of the most interesting voices in the media. I'm Steve Krakauer. Today I'm joined by Emily Jashinsky, culture editor at The Federalist, host of The Federalist Radio Hour, and co host of Counterpoints. This is episode 48. From Trump versus DeSantis and the state of conservative media, to media conformity, to the dangers of social media, to, yes, Jonah Hill, we begin with Emily's Wisconsin roots and time in D.C. Really looking forward to talking with you here. I know you've interviewed me on your podcast and obviously uh, a regular on the Megyn Kelly show. We love having you on there as well. Um, and uh, but, but wanted to kind of get to know you and your background a little bit more. And don't always start at the very beginning uh, with uh, on these podcasts, but I do think it's relevant here um, because I think you bring like a really interesting perspective to uh, an area that is full of not so interesting perspectives. And so it really, I think, stands out. So I, I know you grew up in Wisconsin, right? Uh, obviously, that, that outside the Beltway experience. But tell me a little bit about that. And then coming to DC now that you have, I guess, about a dozen years of living in the Beltway. Yeah, no. So we're starting from the very, very beginning. So I'll say it was a rainy spring day in Waukesha, Wisconsin, 1993. No, I'm kidding. I won't go that far back. But I'll say, um, you know, I, I moved to Wisconsin for college. So it was 2011. So uh, yeah, almost exactly 12 years have been here. And I wanted to come to DC because uh, for whatever reason, as a teenager, I felt like very frustrated watching not just the media for me, it was really more Hollywood. It was more TV. I love, love, love TV so very much um, that watching the condescension was extremely frustrating. Um, I wasn't in, like from a super political household, um, but, you know, very Christian, um, you know, hunting family that hunted, uh, fished and, and all that good stuff. And the way, especially in the Bush years, the media and Hollywood treated people um, who, you know, just like toothless rubes, right? Like that was the the kind of stereotype that was just constantly being punched at. Um, and I, I think it's fine to have people, you know, be the, the butt of jokes like that, but it was incessant and it was smug. And it was really a lot of the reason that I, I think I ended up in DC. Um, you know, the, the book coming apart by Charles Murray is the one that I assigned to students, uh, at the national journalism center every year, because it just, when I read that book, I was like, this is exactly why I'm here. Um, but I just, I really, really was frustrated by and motivated by, um, a desire to kind of, I think a lot of people in media get into media because they're, they're the type of person that really wants to, uh, get to the bottom of big questions. Like they're, they're really sort of obsessed with the truth. Um, and in my case, it was sort of, uh, just being obsessed with writing this wrong, um, of that, that sort of smug condescension. And, uh, I didn't, I wasn't able to articulate it in that way at the time. Um, but you know, it wasn't until I, I really read coming apart and some other books like it that helped, but it was that, that was sort of what drove me to, uh, DC for college and, you know, after I graduated, just got involved in media and have been doing that ever since. And stay there. Yeah. Um, it's interesting. I, I, I think that, uh, I, I wish more people got into journalism with, you know, with that in mind, I, I feel like increasingly there's a, there's a, another, a different drive that's, that's, that's bringing people to journalism, whether it's, 
this idea of kind of a, a level of influencer celebrity that can come with with journalism now or uh, in, you know, a, sort of a, a deviation from getting to the truth is like bringing our truth or, or you know, it, it, it's a different, it's starting from the end point than the beginning point maybe. Um, and, and this lack of curiosity that, uh, you know, I, I do think is so important to journalism, but but is not as prevalent as maybe it should be. Isn't that baffling? I mean, I actually, sometimes when I'm talking to people or reading their work, I can't imagine why they spend so much time in such a difficult industry without having that sort of like predicate of wanting to answer big questions with true facts. Um, it just, it's very strange to me that people would spend their whole lives, uh, you know, in in this industry, which is not a particularly fun industry, unless, you know, let's say you're Don Lemon. Um, although it's not, well, it's probably still pretty fun for him um, because he doesn't have to work now. Um, but you know, it's not, yeah, exactly. He's in the Hamptons. He's fine. Um, but actually I have a really early memory. Um, and this uh, Megan would probably, uh, blanch at this, because I just said early memory, but it was like, it was like the summer of 2009. Um, I was home between shifts on my summer job and I was watching Megan's amazing coverage. Uh, she was on the daytime schedule of Fox at the, at the, at that time. Again, for some reason, 2009 is sticking in my head and she was going in on Eric Holder's insane double standard for the new Black Panther Party on um, voter intimidation. Uh, I think it was in Philadelphia. There was just this insane uh, video of them intimidating voters um, outside of polling places. And nobody else in the media was talking about it. And I watched Megan's coverage every single day that summer and was like, that is the coolest thing in (laughs) the world. Uh, just being able to like hold court and um, push people uh, to talk about things they don't want to talk about. I thought it was amazing. Um, And so it just, it's deeply bizarre to me that people are in this industry where you have the privilege of doing that, which people around the world historically have not had. Um, You have the privilege of doing that and you don't want to do it. It's just weird. Yeah, right. It is a privilege, right? Exactly. I mean, there's a it, it, lucky to be able to uh, to spend time doing this, thinking about these sorts of things. Um, yeah, I agree. I, and it's interesting your, your background talking about um, religion and you know, like hunting, you know, things that are more maybe cultural than political, um, but that that certainly differentiate in in this industry. And I, I do think you know, obviously, you know, we, we describe yourself as a conservative, but also you know, it's not really about politics as so much as as a different kind of cultural viewpoint that you're bringing to it. Um, and I wanted to ask you, cause you mentioned the national journalism center, which I, I believe you're the director of, um, at, uh, mm-hmm. young America's foundation, which I, it's, it's interesting. I went to the website, I'm looking around. It says since 1977, the national journalism center has trained aspiring journalists in the values of responsible balance and accurate reporting. And it goes on about objectivity. And it's like sort of what you might expect from like, a website that, or a, an organization run by, I don't know, CNN or ABC or CBS. But I, I, I do think that this is coming at it from a different point of view in, in a way, but it's also, I, I think, I, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, you know, trying to train journalists to be what is a traditional journalism background. 
Uh, absolutely. And, and thank you for asking about that because it's the phrase we use is truth seeking journalists. And we get journalists that um, are like, obviously, we mostly work with conservative students, but we get students from um, different sides of the political spectrum. And we just tell them, like, I know you're here at Young America's Foundation and Scott Walker is the president and your director is, you know, an open conservative. But all we care about is the truth seeking part of journalism, right. truth seeking journalism. And you can do that through reporting, you can do that through commentary. Um, but what you have to do is prioritize truth over everything else. And the history is super interesting. It was founded in 77 by uh, Stan Evans, who a lot of uh, people in the conservative movement knew and loved. Um, Young America's Foundation acquired it in 2002. Um, but it just comes out of that era, 77, right on the cusp of the Reagan revolution, when the conservative movement was uh, coalescing into something very powerful. Um, and it's been around ever since. And, you know, talk about playing the long game. There are literally thousands of people in media that went through the program and got this sort of like basic training um, about how to do FOIAs, how to, um, you know, do pyramid style, how to do AP style, how to do good interviews, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so the, the number one criteria uh, in the program is just put truth before everything else. Here's the basic way to do it. And uh, it's pretty cool. I mean, uh, there, there are all kinds of things in the conservative movement that people, I think, don't um, know about necessarily that have had a lot of influence. And obviously the media has only gotten worse since 1977, but I think it's a little less worse than it <laughs> could have been because yeah. of that. Well, exactly, exactly. And those same, you know, the Bush era of, of you know, the bad journalism and, and even just sort of the condescending from entertainment that I think has continued on certainly uh, in, the, in 2014, 2015, 2016. Um, so even more reason to have that to butt against it. What is it about our corporate media that adheres to such conformity at the detriment of nuanced conversation? Not to overly flatter you, but you know, you're young, smart, you're like, you know, thoughtful and curious, like in, in a in a different environment. I'm sure you've had experience with cable news or with uh, I mean, I know you're on, you know, Fox and Fox and Fox Business, but but you know, just across the board, you know, whether it's legacy media, um, you know, I, I wonder though, because you're not, I would say, because of some of those characteristics that I think are positive, they don't perfectly align with the current state of the corporate media. I mean, and, and you know, hey, give, give us your talking points and your sound bites in, you know, 30 seconds and, and okay, you're going to play this role. And like, that is actually what happens. I mean, the amount of, of talking points I will send before certain cable news hits is, is kind of incredible to me that, that it's so choreographed in that way. So I, I wonder, uh, you know, as you look at your, your time in the media, uh, in DC, if you have any of these sorts of stories, um, wh whether it's, you know, in the green rooms or just kind of talking to these executives that may have had an interest in you and, and you working with them, but are not, but want you to kind of conform to a certain kind of punditry that they might be looking for. Yeah, no, that's a great question. I would say, you know, 20 years ago, my, the dream job for someone like me and probably myself would have been to, um, you know, do write three stories a month for the Atlantic. So be like a staff writer at the Atlantic where you get to do sort of essay style reporting. Um, and, you know, occasionally then you're going to get your CNN hit and your MSNBC hit or your Fox hit or whatever else. Um, but 
that is, you know, even if I wanted that now, which I wouldn't, although there is a certain romanticism to the idea of writing for uh, an aesthetically beautiful magazine with very clean copy um, that, you know, services the elite and will put beautiful photography to your stories. There's definitely a romanticism to it. But even if I wanted to do that now, they would never have me uh, so long as I was, you know, true to basic principles of <laughs> journalism, let alone uh, conservatism, or I would say even at this point, like patriotism, um, it, it just would be, you know, very difficult to make that work from, from either side, but probably particularly from their side. Um, and for me, I used to do a ton of Fox when I, especially when I was really young, I did a lot of Fox and I thought it was the coolest thing in the world. I still am super grateful to Fox. I think they um, play, there's like a lot of hate, uh, hating on Fox going on in the conservative movement right now. Um, I still think Fox has this like incredible role to play. They reach so they are the mainstream media and they reach so many people with messages, you know, even after Tucker's departure that are anathema elsewhere. Um, they are still a space, you know, I, I would of course prefer a, you know, even more, you know, a Fox where Tucker Carlson was loved and respected, um, not, you know, sort of pushed out the door, but I, you know, I think they still have an incredible role to play. I just never wanted to go down that route and could, you know, professionally, because Steve, you know, this better than I do. When you see up close, what the media, the daily machinations of corporate media looks like, it's um, it, it just takes a certain kind of person. Um, and I respect some of the people who have done it. I don't respect some of the people who've done it. Some <laughs> people can do it while remaining true to their principles and their values and everything. Um, but, you know, there, as someone who grew up, like watching people like Megan, for instance, and that was amazing to me. Like that was a goal of mine. I thought that was the most incredible thing ever. It's definitely disillusioning as, as you know, when you see it up close. Um, so it just, I I'm lucky to have come into media at a time when a lot of other new media doors were opening. Uh, right. so it was easier for me to say, I really, you know, I'm, I'm really done with the 4 30 AM wake ups <laughs> to talk about North Korea when I don't really think I'm qualified to talk about North Korea. Um, you know, so those, those sorts of things, I just feel like I'm really lucky that I'm immediate at a time where, you know, for instance, breaking points, uh, Hill rising, like uh, federalist radio hour, these doors were wide open and allow you to do something similar, um, and reach decent audiences without sacrificing anything. Yeah. Well, and it's so interesting, like breaking points as a great example, uh, and the Hill rising and, and the, the way that like Sagar and, and Crystal, uh, who, you know, certainly Crystal came from the cable news world, you know, was, was one of the panelists on that MSNBC show and, and was the cycle. Yeah. Okay. The cycle, right. It was like the precursor to the five. It was the four and, uh, it had to be, it was like Torre was there and, uh, I think Ari Melber, I don't know. It had a, it was an interesting mix of people. Essie Cup. Essie Cup. Okay. Got it. One of the Essie Cup roles. Um, but it was very defined. Like, you know, now you're going to say the thing that we're going to expect you to say, because this is your, your role. And, and in, you know, what Crystal and Sager did and then, and then later what like you and Ryan do, um, with counterpoints, like it, there is a bit of disruption, even to that left, right model that I think is really attractive for people that, you know, especially when you're not, 
you don't have to, it's not like a five minute segment where, okay, we're really going to have to just like pare this down to what are your two big points? Okay. What are your two? Okay. Now let's go, go. You know, it's, you can actually go and, and breathe and talk and there's not this time constraint to it also, but it, but it is also ideological. Like there is this realignment, um, that, that seems to have given place for, you know, you to not have to play that traditional right role on what is quote unquote TV. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I think a lot of people who do play that role, um, like there are people who, for instance, are able to do it, it with nuance. And that is one of the biggest skills in the world to be able to go on television into those five minute segments and um, bring nuance to the discussion. Um, yeah. And again, like I always felt I was lucky when I started doing Fox a lot. I actually, I worked for YAF at the time I was the spokeswoman and there were so many guardrails because they're a nonprofit. Um, so you, you have to like really learn how to convey uh, something that's worth people listening to. That's not just a talking point. I think it's a huge mistake that a lot of people do when they, they get on cable news is they uh, just actually take those sort of silver platter talking points and use them. And that is uninteresting to the audience. It's uninteresting to the numbers. Even if you say it, really angrily. Um, it's not always going to do as well for Fox as you think it is. And right. you might not get asked back a whole lot. Uh, so I think those restrictions can be really, really helpful. And there are some people who thrive and are, are able to do that. Um, but I, I mean, I don't know why you would not prefer to be able to do that in a podcast format um, or what Breaking Points does, which is marry the podcast format with the the video format, which is exactly what you guys are doing um, over on a Megan show, which is amazing. It's just like the best of both worlds. You get something visually compelling um, and substantial at the same time. And again, it's not that that's impossible at cable. It's in the cable format. It's just that it's much, much, much harder and the incentives are kind of against it. So it is really, 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 really cool to be able to do both and what people are doing on Substack right now, which is, you know, yeah. actually kind of bringing back the best of the written format too. So there's just so much, so much good stuff happening right now that I don't think like the blaze, uh, you've probably thought about this a lot, but them hosting the faith and family yeah. summit in Iowa on Friday was just, I think that's a giant glaring siren to uh, the, the sort of old guard this weekend and into this week that they can be circumvented and the production quality can be fine um, and the substance can be fine. And the Republican Party is going to be a whole lot happier with it. The audience is going to be a whole lot happier with it because it's not Caitlin Collins idea of what you know, should be pushed, you know, Donald Trump should be pushed on and Republican voters want to hear. It's somebody who's actually like more in touch with the average Republican voter. Uh, so I, if I were them, I'd be sort of shaking in my boots just today, because that's a big red siren when you're looking at debate planning, um, when you're looking at yeah. primary town hall planning. Definitely. Yeah, no, it, and it, it is, you know, I think about that because I did, I did check in quite a bit on that Friday with, um, with what the blaze did there. And I, I, I used to work at the blaze, but I also think, you know, it's, it's the talent aspect of it also, you know, it's one thing to have the platform, but to have Tucker front front setter, um, a lot of the top candidates, um, like Vivek and, and obviously DeSantis and some of the others, um, Pence even, you know, just to get these moments with Pence and Tucker uh, and, and have that be able to play. And then obviously Glenn, you know, Glenn Beck and some of the other Blaze talent. Um, these people can exist on the, these outside of the former, you know, constraints of, of you know, of old media and can do really cool things with new media. So, yeah, I completely agree with you. Coming up, Trump versus DeSantis and the 2024 race and the parallels to 2015 
and 2016 for the conservative media. That's next, but first, there are some seismic changes happening across the content landscape beyond the usual media outlets that I normally talk about and cover in Fourth Watch. In the world of entertainment, dueling strikes are happening by the Writers' Union and now the Actors' Union, and they've essentially ground Hollywood to a halt. And the reverberations will be huge. Obviously, there's no new content being produced when it comes to late-night shows and scripted TV and movies, but with the actors stepping away, that stops not just production, but promotion too. Barry Diller warns these conditions will potentially produce an absolute collapse of an entire industry. At the same time, ESPN, the worldwide leader not just in sports, but sports media, has trimmed some of its most high-profile talent over the past few weeks. Jalen Rose, Jeff Van Gundy, Max Kellerman, Keyshawn Johnson, Susie Kolber, Steve Young, a mix of former athletes that have become huge TV stars and actual journalists who have been with ESPN for decades. Gone. Stephen A. Smith, perhaps the most untouchable talent at the network, says he could be next. And whether that's just posturing or reality, it shows the state of sports media, as viewing habits change, among other reasons. And then there are the winners, like Pat McAfee, who's being brought into ESPN at close to $20 million a year as these others are headed out. He's gotten some backlash about it and addressed it briefly, but why is McAfee winning while others throughout the sports media are essentially losing? He's based in Indiana and not the coasts, for one. He's very much not a condescending elitist, but he's also not some crazy right-winger. He's just normal. But dissecting why the people who are cutting through the mess of an industry in 2023 are doing so is important to understanding this perilous moment. I'll dive into it more in a future rabbit hole column out later this week. More with Emily Jashinsky coming up, but I want to tell you that the full Fourth Watch podcast is available exclusively to paid subscribers on Substack. Paid subscribers get a whole bunch of extra content, original deep dive columns called Rabbit Hole, full podcast each episode. Check it out. Five bucks a month, $50 for a year at fourthwatch.media. And now back to Emily. Let's not do a cable news segment about the 2024 GOP uh, primary, but let's just talk about that because I do think like it's starting to kind of break down along what feels like to me similar 2016 vibes uh, with the whole rise of the Never Trump movement. Um, there's this uh, this letter that was signed, right? and I guess it's a manifesto of some sort signed by Freedom Conservatives. conservatives. Mm. Um, and it's an interesting list of people. I mean, it's some of who you would expect of like the bulwarks of the world and the dispatches, but Charles Cook from National Review and um, uh, uh, David Harsani from uh, from the Federalist signed it, uh, and some others. And then it, it kind of reminded me of I was looking back. There was a National Conservatism pledge that you signed. I think that was last year. Um, and that list is a whole different group of people in, involved. Although it's kind of an interesting list. There, it's a very wide ranging list of like the Daily Wire people and uh, Charlie Kirk and and a, and a mix of others from 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 elsewhere. So. I guess I'm, I'm saying it does. I, 2016 was different because there wasn't like a, a, a quote unquote incumbent in in Trump. Um, that's obviously changed, but it does feel like there is this this Trump versus whether it's DeSantis or or just anyone anyone but Trump that's happening right now on the right, particularly you know as we're seeing play out along media lines. And I wonder, you know, as you look at it, are we seeing something that is going to have an effect on the vote, you know, is is the kind of thing where where certain prominent people who don't want Trump to be the nominee in 2024 can have 
a say in what ends up happening here? Hmm. That's a huge question. Super interesting one. I think exactly the dynamic you just described is showing up in the numbers right now, meaning um, in 2015, 2016, as things were getting into full swing, it became basically everyone at most voters aligned against Trump. And then 30% of Republican voters or a little bit more than that aligned absolutely hundred percent with Trump. So in other words, you had Trump with this really solid base of support and then everyone else splitting the uh, majority anti-Trump right. vote. Whereas now it's the opposite. You have um, Donald Trump consolidating in polls, you know, 60 ish, 65%, 70% of the Republican vote. And everyone else is trying to split up like 30% of the Republican vote, which is not nearly enough of the pie unless people start really, really consolidating the undecideds and peeling away Trump voters. So that's the that's the big question to me is like when the freedom conservatives uh, signed the letter against the, the national conservatives from the perspective of somebody who signed one of them. I mean, I almost could have signed on to everything in the freedom conservative letter right. too. I just don't see it, uh, them as being that mutually exclusive. Um, I think there's a lot of like willful misreading of each other happening in the conservative movement right now, because people are very emotionally in their kind of trenches. And um, the, the trick is going to be a lot, the freedom conservative letter, whether the new right likes it or not, is going to appeal to like the tone of that is going to appeal to a lot of suburban women and a lot of suburban voters in general for whom the country is not coming apart, to take uh, Charles Murray's phrase, uh, who, who don't see the American carnage, to take the Donald Trump phase, phrase, and are going to be much more receptive to the optimistic, positive Reaganism. Um, how do you do that? in a way that's also inspiring to people in different socioeconomic brackets, you know, people who are truly disenfranchised on the socioeconomic level, um, while also being appealing to the people who are doing great right now, like those right. two polar opposites, I think is the, the major question. And I don't see anybody. Um, I think, you know, you had state level examples in Ron DeSantis and Glenn Youngkin, um, but I don't see anybody on the national stage right now pulling it off. And that's the real question is like, how do you kind of do both tonal approaches? Uh, because in substance, they're not terribly different. Yeah, right. I, I mean, it, it does seem that, um, yeah, when you read those and people can find them, there's like, I think 10 points to each and they're, they're obviously there's some you know, policy differences, I would say, but, but it's, there, there's a lot of similarities also. It's hard to necessarily it, it, look the one that's the freedom conservatives. It doesn't say like we're against Trump in the way that like certain, you know, uh, I, I worked, I worked with Eric Erickson during the 2016 campaign as a, as consulting with him, his, his site. I mean, he was like, I'm writing this, this column called never Trump because I will never vote for, Trump. you know, like it was very defined. It's not as defined in that way. Um, but I have to ask, you know, as someone, I, I don't, uh, I don't really like have a horse in the race. I'm not, um, you know, I, I don't, I, I know people care a lot about who it's, who it is on the GOP side or who it is in the, you know, I, I don't, but I guess I, I wonder if you think of the freedom conservatives and, and the people that are in the media space on the right, who are very, and I don't want to say anti-Trump, but they're real pushing hard on the DeSantis side. Like, let's make this happen. How much of that is, is, do you think policy versus how much of it is horse racy in the sense of, Donald Trump, they they truly believe, even though they did, they believed in 2016 he could not beat Hillary Clinton. They believe he cannot win in 2024, and it's really just a matter of that. We're we're nervous about him, you know, losing the general election. I'm a kind of um, 
embarrassed to be so fascinated by the online dynamics of the the very online capital V capital O Trump and DeSantis influencers because um I think so much of it is just like influencer on influencer violence at this point where they're they, they specifically have these gripes um because they've been beefing on Twitter back and forth for you know almost a year now and it's only getting worse and worse that's how you end up with the DeSantis war room retweeting that bizarre video, splicing images of Patrick Bateman, a fictional serial killer back and forth with their candidate, which is only like you you could only understand what they're doing there unless you are, are thoroughly irony poisoned and you are a very, very, very tiny part of the population, meaning a public facing um, channel of any political campaign has no business even touching anything like that. Um, I say that as somebody who's like generally favorable to Ron DeSantis. And so that to me is going to be probably one of the more interesting subplots of this primary and this general election campaign probably too, in that I don't know how tethered to policy a lot of these Twitter conversations are. And unfortunately, a lot of these conversations are Twitter conversations. Um, They're they're actually, and it seems like people who are making policy decisions in both spaces are really heavily on Twitter. And, And my recommendation would be get off Twitter period, like don't use it for work while you're running a campaign. Because even if you're conscious and you say, I am making a mental separation between what I see from the small, tiny fraction of the population on Twitter and everything else, it bleeds into your perspective. Uh, Subconsciously, there's absolutely nothing you can do about it. So it's not that there aren't important voters on Twitter. It's just that it's such a tiny percentage of the population and incentivizes bad behavior, bad interpersonal behavior, um, you know, very, very bad interpersonal behavior that distorts policy conversations. And so I think so much of it right now is, is just too uh, poisoned by social media. Okay. Speaking of poison by social media, let me, let me <laughs> stick with that because one of the things that I love about your work more broadly writing and talking is um, the, the, the dive into the real culture conversations, like way outside of it. I, I was watching one of the, the uh, videos you guys did um, with breaking points about Jonah Hill um, and the uh, the scandal that's been going on over the last week, which I, I, I've been fascinated by because there's a lot of different dynamics to it that, it, it, first of all, if you step back and you're like, why is this person sharing like like every text message that Jonah Hill ever sent? Obviously, this is his ex-girlfriend and 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 there's just, it feels like there's a, an element of it. I, I, people talk about like therapy culture with some of what Jonah Hill was saying. And, and we could break down, like, why is he getting mad at a person doing a thing that she was doing long before he dated her? And that's probably why he got interested in it. But also just the idea of like sharing all of these things publicly um, on your Instagram account does feel like sort of a symptom of, of bad social media, just brain that's been infected also like something something's happening that's causing this to happen where now it's being shared publicly with everyone um and just going and going and going so i i wonder what do you think about that story and kind of what it says about about us and where we are 2023 no i'm glad you brought that up because um i think there's a certain slice of millennials that were uh had their kind of childhood or their formative years split in half uh, by the iPhone in 2007 and then by the you know the 
proliferation of it about around about 2012. If you look at like when smartphones hit critical mass among you know people of a certain age, it's about 2012. Um, and so I was born in 1993, 2007, uh, kind of halfway through high school, early high school, the, the iPhone comes out, people start to get it, meaning people start to uh, have these intentionally uh, addictive apps on their body at all times. And yeah. I never, I think a lot of us never thought of any of this as political. Like, I, I think we all were sort of freaked out by it a little bit like, Oh, this is new. It's weird. Um, but it felt really good for like five to 10 years. And we didn't have a lot of questions about it from like a health standpoint. And then right. as somebody who's just like in conservative media, I found more and more, everything seemed for me as someone who is sort of, as I mentioned earlier, like obsessed with, uh, probably to my detriment sometimes like finding a unifying theory of like America's ills, um, <laughs> coming back to social media over and over and over again. And I didn't know anything about like social media, the business. Um, but uh, every single time I was trying to get to the bottom of uh, particularly cancel culture, me too, all of that stuff. I found myself time and time and again, coming right back to Twitter or right back to social media and, uh, coming to this point where it's like, I don't think we can, uh, heal. I don't think we can be healthy as a civilization. So long as our personal political lives have been transferred onto these devices. It's like, if we did all of our politics, um, you know, over cigarettes, but it's so much worse than that because yeah. it's actually, you know, everything like it's, it's, it's every part of your life is now litigated primarily or in large part through these devices. Um, and it doesn't have to be in Jonah Hill's case study, uh, is just like the worst example of how this is. I mean, this, the woman, his ex-girlfriend started posting screenshots of their text message exchanges from a relationship that's more than a year old, the month after he had a new baby. Um, maybe she's a decent person. Maybe she's not, but like what kind of decent person would disrupt uh, a man's someone they claim they used to love uh, new fatherhood by, you know, publicly airing his dirty laundry, trying to disrupt his livelihood. I, I don't know if he's a good person either, but uh, the motivations to do that, um, you know, I, I just think social media made her more valuable as a business like as a, a surf model easily made her more valuable by becoming so much more public after posting that and generating a media cycle of conversation about whether she was right or wrong. doesn't matter. She's now much more high profile. So she's benefited her own business. She's become um, a feminist hero and that probably satisfies her uh, moral longing for self-esteem, you know, finding self-esteem in that, that sort of virtue of becoming a, a feminist hero. And you just see in a situation like that, all of the incentives are skewed against good behavior. Um, and it's just really sad. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I mean, it's like, look, you, you know, I don't know if she had some idea of I'm going to do this so that I could get more Instagram followers, but you know, certainly that even if it was in the back of your mind or the subconscious, like, even if you have I mean, I, th I would say I, I don't know, reading the press, like it's probably 60, 40 in favor of her. I want to say it's, it's split, you know, it, but even if it was like 70, 30 against her, that's 30% more people who know a lot more about her and are like, and you, and then if you get like 15 of those 30%, 15% of those 30% that are like hardcore on your side, now you've got like advocates. I mean, you, you know, it, it, there's a real incentive to, even if you torpedo your, you know, credibility in, in culturally in with, 
more than half of the people that are consuming it, it there's actually like real incentive because you get the affirmations and that's all that really matters at this point. Right. I mean, it's, you know, you you're, you get the positive affirmations and the negative are sort of, I don't know, drifted away in a way. Yeah. And this is an example of, um, I, I mean, I guess also one thing that I meant to mention in the breaking points discussion, which this is like inside baseball stuff. Sometimes we get comments being like, what do you mean you're running out of time? Like you're an internet show. Well, <laughs> actually you still can run out of time on internet shows. <laughs> but one of the things I meant to say is just like, this is such a horrible example for other people going about their lives in society. Like don't post any of this. Like the, the biggest lesson that I can't believe people aren't saying like, this is none of this should be public. It doesn't matter if you're a celebrity, if you dated a celebrity or not, like this is obviously not for public consumption in the same way, the Aziz Ansari story in the me too movement, where this girl, uh, I think pretty clearly outlined an experience with Aziz Ansari, a sexual experience with him. That was bad behavior on his part. Um, maybe from the perspective of men who get a lot of conflicting messages, it's understandable behavior, but it was bad behavior. It was not newsworthy bad behavior. It wasn't, this should uh, destroy a man's reputation in business because he did this bad behavior. And you had my favorite website in the world, babe.net, make a a story out of it that they bragged about editing while they were at brunch. Um, (laughs) It just like, none of this needs to be, needs to be public at all. But because social media incentivizes litigating, um, private situations in public. Um, and, and you can, I mean, if you're just a teenager and you're posting these messages publicly, or you're posting personal information publicly, uh, you're doing it to get reinforcement. You're doing it to get, you know, to know that you're validated and to get people on your side or just to get attention. That is not healthy period. And like the biggest lesson from all of this should be, this is none of this belongs on social media, whether you're a celebrity or not. Right. This is not what we teach at the uh, National Journalism Center. I don't think <laughs> that this is these sorts of stories. Uh, I well, I, I love all your reporting on it. The Scandal uh, article that you wrote, I thought was was fantastic. Uh, you know, I mean, it's like these things pop up and people consume them. Um, but if you step back, I think that there's there's real interrogating why we are obsessed with certain stories. I think is is much more interesting than I think get you know get credit from the larger media. More with Emily Jashinsky, including the Fourth Watch Lightning Round on Michael Knowles, Tim Carney, Red Scare, and more. Available for paid subscribers of Fourth Watch on Substack. Go to fourthwatch.media to try it. Thanks so much to Emily. Really appreciate this conversation. I think she's really one of the more interesting voices in the media. Remember, Fourth Watch, not just a podcast, also a newsletter. Subscribe for free at fourthwatch.media. Join me. Let's build a better media together. If you like the music in this show, as I do, check out the artist who created it, Super Duper. He's actually got a new album out. Super Duper Music on Instagram. This song is Far From Falling. Download it wherever you get your music. And download and follow and like and rate and review this podcast on Spotify, on Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts. Back soon. Stay safe. Talk to you then. 